podcast world what's up we got a good show for you today this life ain't for everybody i'm chad belding i have a very special guest today y'all know my admiration and love of the greatest game of all time america's pastime baseball i had a conversation with my trainer today about these nfl playoffs i've been watching and how like I can barely watch the screen of the the screen because of the injuries. Like I know that baseball is a game that's loaded with an injured reserve list and there's rotator cuffs and knees and sprains and Tommy Johns and there's there's injuries, but watching the impact and the collisions in the playoffs the last 48 hours, I just cringe at the TV screen. So I was talking to my trainer about is this really the day and age to be letting your kids play football? I just returned back from Nebraska hunting with San Francisco 49ers, uh, ex-offensive lineman Justin Smiley from the University of Alabama. And me, Justin and I touched on this about what age his kids would be when they started to play tackle football and they were going to be 14 15 so i say that to say this my guest today has been around professional athletics for a long time mr mike kruko legendary pitcher philadelphia phillies and chicago cubs and the san francisco giants and now in my opinion part of the best broadcast team in major league baseball Kruk and kipe from the bay area san francisco giants mr mike kruko how are you my friend Good, Chad. Thanks for having me on, and uh, and uh, thank you for the compliment. Uh, anytime you include me in uh, in a compliment with Dwayne Kuyper, I, that, that makes my day. I read a stat though that you actually have more Major League Baseball home runs than Kuyper. He was a position player. You were a starting pitcher. You had some relief appearances, but you actually had four or five bombs in the big leagues, and he had one, I believe. Is this correct? Oh yeah, and I remind him of that every day. <laughs> um, but you know, just to give you an idea how the game has changed, Dwayne Kuyper when he played he came up and he was with the indians for the first uh oh five or six years of his career in the big leagues then he was traded to the giants and uh, he got over to the national league but and i never played against him in a real big league game we played uh in spring training uh, i was in the national league he was in the american league and the only time we saw him was when the cubs or the giants played the uh, indians down in in tucson and you know it seemed like i always went down there and Tucson is hard like concrete. The infield's horrible. And you're like playing on the moon, and it's your first outing, and you got 30-pitch limit. And Kipe would come up, and I'd lose. I'd use about 17 pitches on Kipe. And then he'd roll about a 92 hopper between first base and second base, get a base hit. And that's how it always started out. So I never liked him. <laughs> but he was an incredible player. I mean, he led the, the league a couple years in uh, – in, defensive percentage uh, at second base and really should have been a gold glover he was an exceptional glove guy but he had 275 for 10 years he was uh but he never swung for home runs he he always was you know a good bunner and hit the ball the opposite way so you know he, he kind of wears it because people remind him that he only hit one and that i hit five but for me i was a pitcher and i mean i was up there going outhouse or castle on every swing so it didn't matter if i hit 190 it did for him but um, but he's uh, it, it burns it burns a little bit but I do uh, I do kind of twist it every once in a while how good were the conversations between you and uh, on this same topic Mr. Mike how good were the conversations with you and Bumgarner about pitchers that could rake and hit bombs I'm not saying like you hit for a 300 but you did hit some bombs and that's what Bum, Bumgarner's known for a little bit he'd get up there and come out of his shoes a little bit too oh yeah I mean I, when he left the Giants organization and went to Arizona uh, Kipe and I we lamented going what are we going to do now for batting practice? I mean, he was the show. Yeah. Because he'd get in the batting cage, and uh, he might bunt one. He might hit one ground ball the right side, and then that was it. 
he was going to leave Earth and try and hit it 800 <laughs> feet. And it was uh, if for batting practice. If he got uh, if he got 40 swings, he'd hit 28 balls out every day. And it wow. didn't matter where they, what ballpark or how the wind was blowing. I mean, he was just that strong. He was definitely one of the best pit, hitting pitchers I've ever seen. I bet you watching him in Colorado batting practice would have been special, huh? Well, he, he hit uh, the the wall just below the scoreboard. I mean, that's that's a poke. I don't remember anybody for the Rockies ever doing it in batting practice too. But uh, just a remarkable athlete, and uh, you know, I, I, I'm now a big advocate of the DH because the. The skills of hitters at the plate have eroded so badly. I, I'm tired of watching bat at bats, and I'm damn sure tired of watching pitchers that can't get a bunt down. That just really, really upsets me. So now I'm over it. I'm on to the DH. But guys like Bumgarner, and they'll never get a chance again. What What has brought that on to this to the today's game of baseball? Why is it that, in your opinion, Kruk, of why can't a pitcher get up there and look like he's hit? Because most pitchers were athletes. You know, they were position players at one time. I'm not, that didn't mean that they're not athletes now. But they were position players that were getting steady ABs probably all the way up until their senior year of high school. Where, where has it gone different now to where you see a lot of pitchers get up there that literally look like they've never held a bat in their hands? Well, in some instances, they never have. I mean, there are guys that uh, were pitchers their, their entire life. They were uh, played in leagues uh, with DHs and through high school and college and certainly in the minor leagues, so they never had a chance to swing the bat till they got to the big leagues. And um, so it's kind of hard to start learning how to hit when you're in the big leagues. But then it's the uh, physicality of batting practice. You know, guys, they're more protective of their arms, and your arms just aren't designed so you can go out there and spend an hour, hour and a half a day in a batting cage. It just wears on your arm. So they don't. They don't... Uh, they don't they don't spend the time it takes to become a good hitter but more importantly they don't spend time to become a good bunner either that's that's a skill that just has gone by the, the way of the dinosaur and i think a big part and a big reason for it is that they don't play pepper pepper is one of the great games of being able to learn how to control your bat head it's just just a, a just a, a simple game and it i mean ted williams used to say when he was in a slump he used to play pepper to get out of it and uh, now nobody plays pepper. And I think that was one of the really great things to learn how to control your bat head, which makes you a good bunner, because that's all bunning is, is controlling your bat head. But that's all gone. It's just gone. It's just an eroded skill. As far as position players, too, you're alluding to, or are you talking mainly pitching? Because it seems like the small game has been pretty much taken out of Major League Baseball in a lot of instances to where the long ball play, pays the bills, it fills the seats, it sells the merch. Um has this has the short game is the obviously i want to talk about a couple athletes specifically tony Gwynn and ricky henderson coming up here in a second but ricky's record is you know they always say records are made to be broken will anybody ever steal 120 bags again in your opinion crew no so the stolen bases is kind of another thing that's kind of uh gone the way of the dinosaur do you know when the last time the giants had a pitch out think about it a pitch out i mean when roger craig was the manager of the giants we would average six seven pitch outs a game the last time the giants called a pitch out was in 2019 have not called a pitch out since they're not concerned about the running game guys do not want to make out stealing there may be a a couple of exceptions but most of the stolen bases now really aren't i mean they the guys steal them because nobody pays attention to them they're not stolen bases that uh, dave roberts had during the world series where the whole world knew you're going to try and steal and, and he stole it I mean, you don't see many like that anymore. Uh, small ball is, is really gone. Um, there's no more hitting and running. It just doesn't happen. 
Um, the guys get in a batter's box now. They want to get good, three good swings. The organization wants to see them get three good swings. There's no get two strikes and make an adjustment. Don't shorten up, put the ball in play. They could care less. They want damage. So if a guy goes up there and, uh, you know, he'll – I've heard the comment from hitting coaches and managers when a guy goes up there and takes called strike three. Good take. And what they're talking about is they had good discipline to the pitch they were looking for. Anybody who's ever played this game knows that there's fastballs and there's breaking balls or, or off-speed pitches. When you go up there and you say, I'm going to look for, I'm going to go look for uh, a, uh, a fastball, and you're going to sit on that fastball. And an amateur hitter, when a guy throws a little nickel slider or a change up there, he'll wave through it. He can't lay off it. He doesn't have a discipline to be able to take that pitch and sit on the pitch that he was looking for. And now that is something that is stressed daily at the, at, at the professional level, rookie league all the way to the big leagues. They want guys committed to that pitch and that movement and that speed that they're, they're looking for. So when guys go up there on occasion take call strike three, if they stayed true to the pitch they were looking for, guys crosses you up and throws something else, pitching coaches or hitting coaches and, uh, and, and managers, they'll applaud it. They want that plate discipline, which really was a big key to the Giants' success last year when they won 107 games. They were extremely disciplined to what they were looking for. When they got the speed, when they got the movement, when they got the location they were looking for, they wore it out. And it was a big reason why they had a successful year like they had. I didn't like what happened at the end, though. I don't know if it was the umpire's (laughs) fault. I don't know how you feel about it, but they – deserve to win that game. I don't know. It's so like you look at a game like that and the ending of it, but they were so disciplined. They they were they just were winners. They were like this cohesiveness in my opinion that were meant to be together to win that many games in the NL West, which is, you know, year by year, season by season is one of the strongest divisions in baseball in my opinion year round. I mean, you have the you have the Dodgers who are usually pretty good. The Padres are coming on strong. The Giants, I mean, ever since I can remember in baseball, and then you take in 2010, 12, and 14, the World Series championship teams. This team was special, and they won more games than any of those teams that we're talking about now. And you talk about plate discipline, in-the-box discipline, visualization, Ted Williams' book, The Science of Hitting, and I always, and still to this day in my career, Mike, I talk about visualization. I, I mentioned Ricky Henderson. I mentioned Tony Gwynn, but let's, you just said it. You said the guys go in there and they'll take strike three and the coach will be like, good take. Let's just get this out of the way so we can move on from, in my opinion, the greatest player of all time in the history of baseball, Barry Bonds. I think that this man was exceptional with getting one pitch a game and hitting it in McCovey Cove. He would get intentionally walked with the bases loaded. He led the league in walks. He led the league in intentional walks. He's a Hall of Famer, in my opinion. I understand the asterisk. I'm not here to judge that or to argue that. But talk about his discipline and his talent coming out of Arizona State, going to Pittsburgh, playing with Bobby Benilla, Bobby Benilla and Andy Van Slyke, and then he's on the cover of Sports Illustrated, I believe in like 93 when I'm in co- my freshman year in college. And it says, I'm Barry Bonds and you're not. And he's standing in that on-deck circle in that pose. And then he just went on to torment picture, pitchers in the National League and in interleague games for the next 15 years. How special was he, in your opinion? And is he one of the greatest of all time? Well, I, I don't think I've ever seen anybody better than him. I mean, uh, you know, I can't really comment on how he compared with Ted Williams or Babe Ruth. I mean, I didn't see those guys, but I saw Bonds. He's the best I ever saw. You know, when I faced him in 1986, uh, my it was a big year for me, and uh, and I faced him. He was a, a rookie, 
and I'll never forget it because um, he's a skinny guy, and you could scare him. He didn't like being hit. He didn't like getting pushed back. And um, and I tried to backdoor a little flat slider in the outside corner. I made the pitch I wanted in a no-two count, and he hit it down the right field line. And as soon as he left this bat, I go, that's on a hook. Didn't. And uh, it was about – I mean, it was low. I don't think it got 30 feet off the ground, but and, and it was just an impressive swing of the bat. And I never forgot it. I mean, you just don't see that swing. You don't see that type of movement off the bat head. So I was aware of him. But you really had to back up because as special as he was his entire career as a player, you think back about the way he was raised. His father, Bobby, who I played with in Chicago, uh, the education he got sitting around the dinner table every night. And then his godfather was Willie Mays, who was over at the house, or he was over at Willie's house all the time. The education he got from Willie Mays. So the guy was being taught the major league game when he was in the Little League. Things that he saw in the game, nobody else saw. Bonds used to assume that everybody saw the pitcher was tipping a pitch. Well, they didn't. He saw it. He couldn't believe that anybody else didn't see it. And he actually would look down their nose. You don't see it? Like, like you know. But no. No, I, I, don't, I don't see it. And then he, he would proceed to to give the tell well you watch you watch his glove right there he's moving his forefinger when he's throwing breaking balls or whatever the tell was um when we used to go in airplanes going into atlanta and uh, he was going to face bonds was going to face glavin smoltz and maddox when he was going to face those guys he would tell you what they were going to throw him he'd give you the first five to ten pitches that he was going to see out those guys i mean and, and and we dwayne kuiper my partner and i we we would watch for it and, man, I'll tell you what, he was spot on. His intelligence to the game was one of the highest IQs I've ever seen. His instinct to the first step in the outfield, the, to the first step on the base pass, remarkable. So I don't think you'll ever see another player quite like him. Um, is he a Hall of Famer? Well, unquestionably. And, I, and I, I'm frustrated that he's had to wait this long. And uh, hopefully this year that, um, you know, it'll be a, a different story for him. But there, what he did, you know, usually – there are two types of hitters, guys that hit for average or guys who hit for power. Rare that you see a guy that can do both. And Bonds was the pinnacle of both. And uh, there is no more intimidating player, at least in the generation of time that I've seen this game, been around it, than Bonds. And uh, and we all appreciate it. We, we didn't miss his at-bats. And neither did the opponents. Neither did the fans rooting against him. I'll never forget a home run he hit. And I forget what it what it was, what number. I think it may have tied uh, Hank Aaron. It may have. T- it was it was a monumental home run. We were in San Diego, packed house. They were there to see Bonds, and he steps up into the batter's box and he got booed like <laughs> I'd never heard before. Booed, just an ugly, loud, mean spirited, hateful boo. The next pitch, he hit it out of the ballpark, and the same people were cheering. It was one of the most incredible turnaround 180s I've ever seen in life. And, uh, and everybody in the, in the stands were high-fiving each other. They weren't all Giants fans. Majority of them were Padre fans. We're in San Diego. And, but they saw baseball history, and they knew what they were seeing. And whether you liked him or not, when you watched the game that he was playing in, he was, don't miss TV. Can't miss TV. And, you know, I don't think we'll ever see anybody better. You as a man talking to me, man, mono mono right now, and if you can't answer this, I completely understand, but you are, you have an unbelievable baseball IQ. You're studied in the game. 
your preparation is unbelievable. Your keenness to the game is unbelievable. I'm not trying to just blow smoke. I mean, like the preparation it takes to do what you and Kite do is on a different level. I'm assuming that, but I also understand that you have to be prepared to call a fight or call a game or and understand the bullpen and understand the bench and understand the the, the analytics and understand the strategy. Did you know what was going on? Did you know what Clemens was doing and what Sosa was doing? Was Pujols doing it, but he never got caught? The, the seats are full. The merch is at an all-time high for sales. Does C-League know what's going on? Tell me, like, why is there an asterisk if the game was at an all-time high and there was a reason for it? There was home runs being hit consistently. I get that. McGuire was doing his thing. Canseco comes out with his book and calls calls some people out, if I remember correctly. You can correct me if I'm wrong, Mike. But did you know, were you sitting up in the broadcaster booth and covering the mic like Bob Euchre in, again, the greatest baseball movie of all time, in my opinion, Major League? Were you covering it and being like, something's going on here? I mean, did you know? We all did. Um, you know, I mean, we were, we were playing um, – yeah, as players, St. Louis was a ballpark that you just it was, it was just a big yard, and you just didn't have many people hit home runs over the wall in center field. I don't care if they're just scraping the fence; balls didn't go out to center field. It was a um, multi-purpose stadium, Bush Stadium, and uh, it was uh, circular. And um, uh, when you and it was sunken, so you get in there, there wasn't a lot of wind there. You didn't get much help as a hitter. Um, and we saw, I'll never forget, you know, one of the longest homers I ever saw was Dave Kingman, who could hit the ball as far as anybody, and, and a teammate of mine in Chicago when I was with the Cubs. And uh, he hit a ball to left field um, that hit off the uh, restaurant out there, uh, the Marty Marion restaurant. And uh, I'll never forget it because we was just like, oh, my God, how is that even possible, right? Well, now here comes this era that we start to see things we've never seen. We start to see guys hitting balls over the Marty Marion Clubhouse restaurant in St. Louis into the upper deck. We came in there, and Mark McGuire, you know, he was so scrutinized that you know, he would get to the ballpark early and hit by himself. Dwayne Kuyper and I would sneak in just to watch him, watch the ball coming off of his bat because it's something that we had never seen before. And he was hitting balls consistently into the upper deck and left field. They had a ball that he hit off the facing of the upper deck in dead center. Now, that's the damnedest swing of the bat I've ever seen because that's impossible. And yet, here we are watching it. So, did we know? We did. We knew that the guys were hitting the ball farther than they ever had. We were seeing guys who were just little, you know, pencil sticks that were flipping the ball out the opposite way in big yards. Houston in the Astrodome. Guys who weren't big, flipping it out to right field with their right – I'm talking about right-handed hitters doing it, hitting it out opposite field. We never saw that. You never saw it in batting practice. just didn't happen. Now we're seeing it at every game. And it's not just the big guys. It's the little guys doing it. And then we saw the pitchers coming out of the bullpen. You know, it was a big deal when somebody threw 95 out of the bullpen. You maybe have one or two guys that could do that. Now, I don't – and it's been my suspicion, too, that – the guns were not as accurate uh, as they are now measuring velocity of a pitcher's fastball. But now we're seeing guys consistently going 95 over 100 miles per hour. So we're like, we have never seen this before. How does this all of a sudden start happening? And they're not making new bodies. It's, you know, it's the same bodies that are playing now, basically the same bodies that played in 1910. Um, so, yeah, we were aware of it. Um, but I also have to say that 
it wasn't just a few guys doing it. It wasn't 20 guys doing it. And I don't know the percentage of what it was, but it was a high percentage. And I think a lot of guys felt that they had to do it to stay on par with what was happening. And I think that's a pretty realistic assumption. If you're a player, you got to stay, you got to compete. And uh, so I don't know t- uh, what the overall percentage was, but I know there was a lot of guys doing it. And it was a lot more than what you can imagine. And uh, yes, we were aware of it. On an athletics sense, going back to Barry, you still have to see the ball and hit the ball, which in my opinion is the hardest thing to do in any athletic event in the history of the world, to hit a round object with another round object, changing planes with that millisecond, millisecond of reaction time. Did the roids help with just being able to recover and not sustain injury through the whole year and be able to stay healthy? Or do they actually make you a better contact hitter, in your opinion, Mike Kruko? I know the ball is going to travel faster. I know that your bat speeds and velocity and the exit speed of the ball at leaving the bat is probably going to go up. But can it make you, in your opinion, become a better hitter as far as seeing the ball and having those instincts and those reaction times that Barry had? No, I don't know. I mean, I never took them, so I don't know. I mean, uh, I just uh, – I don't know. Uh, it's an interesting question, but only the guys who took them could give you an answer on that as to how their 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 ability to see it uh, uh, elevated um, and their quickness to the ball elevated. I, I don't know. But, in, you know, you still have to be able to have a mind in that batter's box. You still have to be able to identify movement because they were seeing – some exceptional stuff because the pitchers were were uh, suspect as well. And uh, it, the thing that was so remarkable about Bonds, um, who, again, never proven, uh, suspected, um, but his ability to use his mind in the batter's box, that exceeded anything. I mean, I don't, steroids, if he indeed did them, they didn't, they didn't improve his intelligence. They didn't improve his ability to anticipate to be able to read stuff, to be able to sit on a pitch. We watch him get one pitch, and it might not be a game. It might be in three games. And no matter who threw it or where they threw it, he wouldn't miss it. If he was sitting on it and he got it, he didn't miss it. That, to me, is the most remarkable thing I've ever seen. And was it something that could be enhanced? I don't think so. I don't think that was. I don't think that intelligence um, was affected by it, if indeed he did do it. So... Uh, to answer your question, I've never done them, so I don't know how they actually affect you. But you know, I, 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 you can't take anything away from a guy's mind. And in Bond's perspective, I think he's the most intelligent guy I've ever seen play the game. I agree 100%. And you just said that suspected, not proven. So my last question on this asterisk time in this game that you and I love so much and that you are so highly regarded with, did – Major League Baseball use individuals such as the man we're talking about as scapegoats when they knew what was going on, but they had to come out with some kind of answer or defense or disciplinary action to make sure that everybody knew that, hey, we were unaware of it. We had no idea why the ball was flying out and why the stadiums were so packed and why the merch and the beer sales were so high. Barry Bonds is a first ballot 100% vote getter, in my opinion, in any Hall of Fame of well, I don't care who it is. The guy is the best hitter of all time in the game of baseball. He should have been a first ballot Hall of Famer. Do you think that they used people like Barry Bonds or any of these other individuals that we've mentioned as scapegoats when they really did know what was going on, but they had to cover it up a little bit? 
Well, I don't know if they covered it up. I definitely feel that they had to uh, pinpoint um, um, certain players I, only because I don't think they had Major League Baseball. I don't think they had an idea as to the percentage of guys that were actually using this. And it was unrealistic to think that they could go back and prove 75% of the league was taking it. That that was unrealistic. But what they could prove and what they could do some background search on are the premier players in the game. And if you're the commissioner, isn't that your only option? Is that if you're going to make a rule, if you're going to penalize somebody, you penalize the biggest people in the game. So I do think that uh, they were the guys that were the obvious choices to go after. Um, but beyond that, I, I think that that Bonds was the number one whipping boy on all this. And I think that everybody in that generation that did steroids, that took them, they had to walk up to him and say thanks because he took the heat off of them. They weren't going after them because they were going after him. Um, so I, I, but, you know, look, everybody who went to, uh, to Washington and, and was sat on that panel and were questioned by Congress. I mean, that, those guys were, that was a lot of heat. And, uh, and I think that they were chosen for a reason because they were the premier stars of the game. They were stars in the game that were challenging the record book, which is what the major offense was. Had the, had the records never been challenged, I, I don't think anybody would have said a word. But the most sacred things in baseball are the records. And now all of a sudden, um, they were all being erased. And I think that's what was one of the prime motivations for all of the writers, all the colonists, all of the, the politicians, and, uh, and the people who eventually uh, penalized the players. Uh, and, and I think that I kind of lost track of what I was talking about. But basically, I think that's what happened. I think all those guys paid the price because of who they were. If he goes in, are you in Cooperstown to shake his hand and say congratulations? Well, I don't know. We probably have a game that day, and I don't know if they're going to let us off to go uh, to go to Cooperstown. You know, I've never been to Cooperstown. Really? Ever. Uh, the only time that – the closest I ever got, in 1990, I retired in spring training. And that year, they used to always have a game. It was an exhibition game where two teams, two major league teams, usually uh, it was kind of the first form of uh, interleague play. It didn't count. You play it at uh, Abner Doubleday Field uh, in Cooperstown. It'd be uh, the d- year in 1990 was going to be the Giants playing in Minnesota, and I was like, "Yeah, great! This is my chance to finally go to Cooperstown," and uh, and I retired, so I never made it. So I've never been. And uh, would I go? I would go if I could. Absolutely. I mean, I would go there and stand and applaud. No question. Take me back to your coming out party when you were drafted, and the feeling of what it means to be in that select group of people. I had a piece of paper on my refrigerator, my junior year in college, Mike, that said, I'm one of the top like 1,760 baseball eligible players in the country. I truly thought I was. I told you before we started on the microphones that my college coach called me the biggest recruiting mistake he ever made. I was out to prove him wrong. I wanted to get one AB in the minor leagues, even if it was just rookie ball. I didn't care. I just wanted to get, I wasn't good enough to go to the next level. I had cross checkers, Wally Walker, some different cross checkers look at me and say, you just don't have the arm strength. You get to the ball well, but you don't do this. You just don't, you just don't have it. Okay. That's tough to take on the other side of that spectrum. Crook. How does it make you feel as a, as a, is it just another day because you know that you got it, you know that you got the sauce, you know that these guys that are coming out in the draft, they know months before that they're going to get drafted, but is there still some kind of 
just feeling of just like you were like, man, I did it. Like, talk to me about that draft day and what it meant to you back then. And is it the same today with all of the projections and again, all the analytics and like everybody knows what's going to happen before it ever does now? Well, it's not just another day. I mean, it's a special day. I mean, I got drafted out of high school by the Angels. I think it was 32nd round. Um, as a pitcher catcher, what was unique about it was I didn't pitch. I had never pitched. I was a catcher. And uh, Kenny Myers, a scout with the Angels, called me up the night before the draft. He goes, hey, kid, you want to play professional baseball? I said, yeah. Say, we're going to draft you. And uh, this is 1970. And they did. Um, and uh, I was just – it was – I was euphoric. I mean, seeing friends and relatives and neighbors, uh, it was a form of recognition that validated that you were a pretty good player. And that's what it meant. I mean, I didn't realize or think that I had a, a, a remote chance to sign and get to the big leagues. But the very fact that I had some scout think that I had a chance, that was a significant thing. Um, I went to, uh, I didn't sign. I went to uh, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo for three years. And then my junior year, I got drafted again, eighth round by the Cubs. And I signed that time. And even my mindset then was, uh, I just wanted to get as high as double A ball. Then, you know, play three or four, maybe five years. Five years because uh, I wanted to uh, say that I played as many years as Augie Garrido, who was our coach at, at, at Cal Poly. Um, and then I'd come back to school, get my degree and you know, maybe credential, maybe teach. I didn't know what I wanted to do. But I signed, and I never would tell anybody that my dreams were to get to the big leagues. I just didn't want to let that be known. I just thought, well, no, I mean, no, I, oh, I don't want to jinx it. My goal was to throw one pitch. Like you said, you wanted one at bat. I wanted to throw one pitch in the big leagues. Just one pitch, and, Lord, I will never bug you again. <laughs> and... uh I did. Then I kind of got greedy, and I and my next deal was I kind of want, I want to I want to have Vince Scully say my name on the radio. I mean, I grew up in Southern California and was raised a Dodger fan, and you know, really taught the game of baseball by Vince Scully. And I wanted him to to say my name on the radio. First time we went in, my rookie year, I was pitching as starting pitcher uh, against the Dodgers, Dodger Stadium, and uh, bat night, fifty two thousand people out there. Bottom of the first, I trot out there, and back then everybody had a little transistor radios. Well, there's 20,000 radios. You could hear Vince Scully, and no he was way. talking about me. No <laughs> way. It was, it was really – Because the, the fans are holding the radios to hear the game yeah. so they could hear the commentating yep. while they're watching it live. But yeah. you could hear in the background, you could hear Scully's <laughs> broadcast, and he was talking about me. So now, people talk about surreal experiences. Well, that certainly was one. Wow. But, so I didn't. I wasn't greedy. I just wanted to throw a pitch and have Vince Scully say my name, and I was gone. Good. I'd see you later. And how I wound up playing 17 years, I have no idea. But uh, you know, I lucky. And then to be a broadcaster for let's see, this will be my 49th year, something like that. 50. Yeah, this may be my 50th season in pro baseball. Yeah. Wow. Congrats, I know. Congratulations. How, how lucky is that? So no, I've never worked a day in my life. You know. Could you pick? Could you pick? And you mentioned Augie. He went on to Fullerton and then Texas, and was I played against Fullerton? Unbelievable manager. Just in Illinois, coach. he was at the University of Illinois I, I, for a while. Illinois, yeah, that's true. Neil Stoner, who was the basketball Stoner. coach at Cal Poly when uh, Augie was there, became the AD at uh, uh, in at University of Illinois, and he got Augie there for a couple of years. That's right. Can you can you going through your playing career? 
I mean, that's a long time to be in the big leagues. And you played against some freaking monster, like just the teams, the experiences, the individual players. Is there anything that you would never give? I know that it's been a special career, but was it Gwynn? Was it watching him hit? Was it knowing what was going on in Baltimore with, with Cal and the Ironman record, which might be another record that will probably never be touched ever. I don't know what your opinion is on that. I think Ricky Henderson and him, those two records are some that may never be broken. But what was it, Krook, that stood out in the career? Is there something that you would sit down right now and either type or, or stencil out or pencil out that said this one moment or these five moments or something that I played my whole career to see or I would never give those back? Well, I, in 13 years in the big leagues, I only pitched in one playoff game. And uh, that was 1987. And we were down the series two games to one to the Cardinals game in a seven-game series. And uh, and I got a start. I and mean, in that year, I'd won 20 in 1986, and I'd had some arm problems. So going into that postseason, I had won five games and really had to pitch my tail off to make the roster to qualify to be on the team for the for the playoffs. And we go into game four, and Roger Craig just didn't, you know, he he loved my competitiveness and whatnot. My stuff wasn't great at that time. So when I went into that game four, he said, just give me four or five. If you can do that, just, you know, hold the line. Okay. And uh, packed house and, and candlestick. And candlestick, I mean, as, as beautiful as, as uh, Oracle Park is, nowhere near as loud as what candlestick used to be. Candlestick was loud. And on this particular night, there was 55,000 people there, and, it was such a magical night because everybody was into it. Everybody, I mean, you throw a strike, the place was psyched. You struck somebody out, they were psyched. I think I only struck out three that night. But we won the game, four to two, it evened the series up, and I went nine innings. And that night, that relationship with the, with the crowd and what that game meant to us and the fact that, uh, you know, we won it. Uh, there were three home runs. Our guy says he had Robbie Thompson, Jeffrey Leonard, Bob Brinley, all had home runs. We won 4-2. to two. We were down 2 nothing in that game. I gave up a hit to Danny Cox, the pitcher, an 0-2 count. Unforgivable. St. Louis was good, though. St. Louis was very good. They, won, they go on to win the World Series, don't they? No, they went on to uh, play uh, Minnesota, and they got beat. In 87. In 87. We lost it in, this, in game seven. But that so they, game four for me, was that was the pinnacle of my career. So that's the pinnacle game four. Do, what do you do that night against Ozzie Smith? Do you remember? No, he hit the ball hard a couple times. Um, Ozzie was, you know, he was feisty. I never respected him. When he first, uh, you know, he came from Cal Poly. He's a Cal Poly guy. Oh, really? Well, it would have been my senior year. I, I signed my junior year. Had I played my senior year, that would have been Ozzie's freshman year. So I kept an eye on him, uh, you know, because I knew of his reputation and and uh, his his legend. Um, but I he was small and he wasn't strong and he was kind of slappy and I just didn't have a lot of respect for him. He had great numbers against me, and uh, by the time he got out of the game and he played close to what eighteen twenty years or something like played a long time, um, he turned into a good hitter. Um, but the guys that that I had problems with were the balance hitters, guys that you just couldn't get them to leave their hands. If their hands, a lot of power guys, you know, they'll commit their hands and their back leg, and you can get them off balance. Because, you know, hitting's timing. Pitching is upsetting the timing of a hitter. That's what pitching is. But the guys I just couldn't upset the timing of were very similar. Pete Rose, Bill Buckner, Tony Gwynn, and Bill Madlock. They are all pretty much the same type of hitter. They just, you couldn't, you couldn't, they would never lose their hands in an at bat. They always stayed back, and they could beat you even if they got in their front leg. And uh, you know, it's, it's 
those those type of guys would, uh, you know, Trevor Bauer said something a couple years ago, pissed me off about how this generation is so much better than previous generations. And he said Pete Rose would struggle to hit 270 or something like that. You know, it was just a complete slap in <laughs> Not the face. Not true. And I just, I, I was so upset about that. And I just thought, you know, why would a guy say that? Why would you criticize a previous generation? You know, yeah. well, as we know, the guys, whatever. Anyway, but those guys would hit anywhere against anybody, those type of hitters. And, and I was privileged to play in an era where, you know, it was, you know, it was, you played the game. The game was played differently. You know, you know they, they weren't up there swinging for a three-run homer in every count. You know, they made adjustments. Um, if you overshadowed it, uh, with all the overshadowed defenses we see now, if you played those back in, in my generation, guys, would that, that's a layup to go the opposite way. Shorten up the swing, punch it to right. They're going to open up a side of the field on you. Foop, see you later. Very few guys would continue to swing and try and hit homers. Maybe McCovey, maybe Stargell, maybe Williams. But, you know, you're seeing switches on, on guys who are slappy. And they're still trying to hit home runs, which is crazy. Anyway, I, I, I love the generation that I played with, and I played against, with and against a lot of really great players. Where were you when the earthquake hits? Is it 89 or is it 88? Correct. Is it 89? 89. Where, where are you standing? I assume you're in the Bay Area when it hits because it's the Battle of the Bay. This is your last year, right? Did you retire in 89 or 90? You retired in 90. So are you're on the squad. Where are you standing and what's the aura like? Give me a, an insider's look at what's going on that we got to see through the TV and just the, the turmoil that was going on on the Bay Bridge and everywhere else. Well, it, it had been a remarkable year to get to the, big, uh, to the World Series. My season ended in late June when I tore my rotator and I had to have surgery, so I was done. The rest of the year, I was just a cheerleader, and uh, so I had a great seat on the bench. And, uh, but on that particular day, you know, we're t- taking on the A's, who had a remarkable year, and uh, they were, I think, the best team that I ever played against. And uh, so we were down two games coming into game three, and uh, it was going to be in a candlestick. It was 5.04, and, uh, you know, just a buzz. The place was getting lit up, and, uh, you know, it was loud, and it was exciting. So I had left the dugout going to uh, – find out where my wife and my children and uh, the party that we had left tickets for, I was I was up, not that far away from uh, home plate, looking up at the stands behind home plate to see where they were, and uh, and then it hit. And if you remember, the uh, backstop in Candlestick was self-supporting. There were no wires that helped it. It was a very small backstop, and it was very rigid. And... Uh, when this thing happens and the earthquake happens, it felt like a 650-pound gopher was going 45 miles an hour underneath my feet. That's what it felt like. When that happened, you know, I got down in kind of a, you know, a football position just to kind of say get balanced so I wouldn't get knocked down. I looked at the backstop or the back, uh, the screen behind home plate, and it was going back and forth, waving about you know eight feet, you know, back and forth which as rigid as that thing was, that just isn't possible. Then I looked up at the light tower behind the third base dugout and it was torquing uh, and it was like waving to me. And it, it, so it got your attention. It wasn't the biggest rock or shake that we had ever felt. We had experienced probably a dozen earthquakes in the three years prior to this one in 1989, but it was a length of time. It didn't stop. It just kept going. It, it it went for almost a minute, 
And uh, that's something we'd never experienced. And uh, that, that's, you know, and so we didn't know what was going on. We got back to the dugout, and uh, there was a, 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 a cop there who had been our cop uh, that protected our dugout through the whole season. And uh, and we went up to him and said, Bobby, what's going on? You look a little upset. What's going on? He said, well, we have a, a new system of communication that's foolproof. You know, you can't it can't break down. And, uh, well, what's the matter? It broke down. So we had to wait a while to try and find out news around the Bay Area. And then it came back up, and the Nimitz was down, and the marina was heavily damaged, and a chunk out of the Bay Bridge had fallen, and we knew there was going to be no more game tonight. Our concern that point was just how many people were injured or killed, and uh, it was a scary thing. Do you do you um, staying on the topic of the Bay Area? Are you happy every day that you get to travel in and out of that city during baseball season? You know, at least for eighty home games a year, eighty-two home games a year. Um, it's changed a lot. The system going in and out's changed a lot. The city, there's a lot of things said about San Francisco as a whole, though, right now, whether it's politically or whether it's interstate, whatever it is. Do you enjoy being in that part of the country every day as your full-time gig? Every day. Love it. It's just the most remarkable city. I mean, it's it's a different... San Francisco is a completely different animal. It's a living and breathing animal is what it is. And it's it's entertaining. It is absolutely beautiful. It'll piss you off. It is uh, one of the most romantic places I've ever been in my life. My wife and I, we just can't get enough of San Francisco. It's just uh, so full of life. It's so, the ethnicity in that city in regards to art and music and food is beautiful. And uh, it it's a sense of community that uh, is something we've always really felt so lucky to be a part of. And, uh, and the whole attitude in that city is something that, that we pride ourselves in. And it's just, uh, every day I, I go there, it's just, it's more, I said, well, that, that year when I was a player, we never went to the city. We were a candlestick. We all lived down the peninsula. Yeah. One guy lived in the city the whole time that I played. Dwayne Kuyper. Savant. <laughs> man of art. And then when we moved into the city in 2000, uh, in 2000 and uh, we started to live there full time, it was like, oh, my goodness. We were missing. It just was just a whole revelation. And, uh, and it's something that we're very, very proud to be part of. And that's the history of that city. Taking the the game out of the city and taking the players out of your response, you've seen Kenny Loggins sing in that stadium. You've seen Steve Perry run down one of the the, the journey's got so many ballads that the crowd will just erupt into. You've seen people sing the national anthem. You've had people in your broadcasting booth. Tell me the memory that sticks out of non baseball where you're like, oh my god, does this guy really sit next to me or what's going on? Because baseball brings a lot of people together in that format. Does any stick out in your mind? Carlos Santana. Uh, Santana for me is one of my favorite guitarists. I play the guitar, and I've been a, and I, I admire the guy. And 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 I, you know, I'll, I, to this day, I'll put on you know Santana music, and I'll sit in my room and uh, I'll play a drum to his music. And uh, it just, I just think the guy, he totally understands. And uh, there was a time when the Giants were, they made a bobblehead of Santana. He's got like a Giants jersey on, and he's got a guitar in his hand and whatnot, and. Uh, so he comes up and he's like, here, uh, uh, Carlos Santana will join you in inning three. So we can't wait. I can't wait. So he sits down and I'm sitting next to one of my idols, right? Carlos Santana doesn't know that. 
but we start talking and uh you know we're talking we're, and this is at oracle park so we're in this you know this cathedral and uh here he is and he's a huge baseball fan he's a few huge sports fan really? and uh so you know, I'm asking him on TV. I go, you play the guitar every day? He goes, yeah, I take it for a walk. You know, <laughs> who's cooler than that? Serious yeah. business. And uh, so we're talking about music and baseball. And I said, uh, well, how do you like this stadium? And he, and he looked at me and he says, you know, I've played at holy places. I've been, I've had at Stonehenge and, uh, you know, we in, in Greece and in uh, South America. I've been to holy places in Africa and I've played in holy places. And this is a holy place. Oh, wow. And it got quiet after he said it. But, I mean, he was absolutely right. That's how we feel going there every day. I mean, it's there's a lot of happy in a world that has got a lot going on. And uh, how many times can you have 40,000 people come into uh, an environment and have the same vibe? Regardless of what your political or religious beliefs are, you're united because of the the colors that are, you're wearing and the team that you're loving and the environment that you're watching baseball the sport that brought us all together how often does that happen it's a holy place and it was carlos santana that said it and i'll never forget that moment. wow that's awesome did he play the anthem that night on his guitar you know he did he was there and his wife was on the drums and she could play I love listening to him and Nugent do that. I love when, because Ted's a friend of mine and he does that anthem and he, Ted can rip the guitar too. But yeah, I remember that night, but that wasn't very long ago that Santana did that. You said it was an Oracle Park. That's in the last decade, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Was, hey, real quick before we move on, does the guy to my left, your right, right here kind of look like Carlos? Yeah, he it, does. Doesn't he? He looks a little bit like Carlos Santana. Um, you're, you're talking about the, the aura of the place and the game and how special this temple is. Cause I, I say this all the time, Krug, when, when I was told you'll never play ball again, I was like, Oh my gosh, my life's over. Obviously I, I didn't mean it like that, but I just wanted to play ball so bad. When I walk into Oracle park and I smell the garlic fries and I see the grass and I see the ocean behind it, you know, the bay behind it. And I know that Wharf 39 is right here, and I'm going to get some chowder after. You probably know the best chowder houses down there. You're going to have to give us some advice. How emotionally disruptive was it to you personally when COVID hits and that stadium's empty and the whole talk is, like, canceled, and then it's coming back, but we're going to have fake cardboard cutouts in the stands to be fans and a lot of stadiums did this what was going through your heart and soul not your mind because i know you're an educated person but how emotionally disruptive was this to somebody that loves this game and this stadium so much well it was hurtful because um here's our game that is being played but yet it wasn't embraced you know it was like uh you know, somebody painting a beautiful picture and having nobody to show it to. Somebody singing a, a gorgeous song or playing a, a virtuoso, uh, playing a, an aria that uh, was, you know, spectacular, but there was nobody there to listen to it. The, the relationship between the fan and the fans and the game of baseball is what makes the game of baseball. And that goes back from the very first day, the anticipation, the electricity of the, of the energy in that ballpark, and then to have none of it. It was just, it was like we played the entire season in a closet. And, uh, but it was such a great lesson um, because 
it was, you know, such, you know, the fans don't get enough credit. They don't get enough applause because they're the ones giving the applause. But the year without the fan in 2020 was such a, a glowing reminder of how special and important the fans and their reaction and their energy is to the game of baseball. I don't think the game of baseball in 2020 was anywhere near what we've ever seen because the crowd reaction, the crowd energy allows these guys on a nightly basis to do things that they can't do, didn't know they could do. The reason they do this is because they're geeked up on adrenaline supplied by the fans. They're all performers, and they all want to be in an environment, in an arena where they can play their game and and interact with the people in the stands. Make that person in the stands who loves the game of baseball, who's played the game of baseball, make them feel like they're on the field because of something that you've done. That's a special thing. That's a special thing. And we didn't have it. And then when it came back in 2021, it was in increments. 5,000 people, 8,000 people, building up to where in the end of 2021, we had full houses again. And it was just uh, the most beautiful thing that I witnessed. You talk about the fan and you talk about how cherishable this game truly is. And I... I truly believe that in my heart. Like, there's nothing like in professional sports and athletics like baseball to me. I love ping pong. I love college wrestling, but I absolutely adore baseball. Like, it's my like my go-to. I could watch college baseball. I could watch the Little League World Series. I've been to I've been all over Omaha and the old stadium. I've been all over the new stadium. I love baseball. You talk about the fans and how they cherish this and they bring out the best in the players and the organizations. They are what makes these organizations the money they need to pay these players to do what they do. Talk to me a little bit about your personal feelings, Krook, on when the game's put in jeopardy. We've touched on the asterisk air, but now let's go back in the last five years in Houston and what this means to a guy like you that came up playing the game the way it was intended. Hardcore. We talked about Pete Rose and Ricky Henderson, the small game, the bunts, the moving runners over, the sacrifices, the stolen bases, diving into second, stealing home. I mean, it was crazy to watch that era of baseball. It was the best in my opinion. How does it affect you when you find out that something like this is true, that there is cheating going on to put this game in limbo like they did and to take the advantage away from the other team? Well, I mean, cheating has gone on since the very first game was ever played baseball. And, uh, you know, if you could know what was coming, if you had a way to, you know, study and be able to relay signs from when you were a runner at second base to the to the guy in the batter's box or relay location uh, of a pitch, uh, which side of the plate that pitch was going to be, um, it would give your team an opportunity, create an edge, and everybody was trying to do it. Where it got a little weird is uh, when the electronics – started getting involved and uh you know when you had some of these teams that would have a little credit card like card that were in the pockets of major league hitters and they were in the batter's box and there was somebody in the clubhouse that's watching it with a tv that is complete with a camera that is just doing nothing more than looking at the signs. Well, if you play this game long enough, you you watch long enough, you're going to be able to determine what the sign system they're using. First sign after two, uh, you know, third sign, pump system, 
you know, whatever system you have, you know, if you've been around the game long enough, you can figure out what they're doing. Well, if, if you have a guy who's sitting in the clubhouse and he knows a fastball is coming, he can hit a button and that little card that's sitting in the guy's back pocket who's in the batter's box starts to buzz, doesn't make a noise, just gives him a feeling that allows him to know that that fastball is coming. Well, that's something that, that's a different type of cheating. I mean, that's not right. You know, what you say, the guy was banging on a trash can, letting him know it was coming, well, that's a little crude. But the system was so far beyond that, and there were a lot of teams that were doing it. No way. And it just, you know, it, I'm glad they came down on, on, on the, uh, the Astros the way that they did. Um, they made it uh, a point that uh, other teams that were watching that were doing it uh, just quit doing it, so the game got a little bit cleaned up. Uh, are they completely cheat-free now? I doubt it. You know, baseball's still going to – players are still going to try and create an edge wherever they can. Um, but I, I think, you know, the game of baseball, these things happen, and then we react to it. And the new ro- rules are constructed to try and prevent it. And uh, fines and penalties are levied on players and organizations for it. And uh, it has – a uh, you know, the, the game grows. It, uh, it, uh, so, I mean – there are bad moments in the in the great history of baseball, but I always like to think that baseball has come out on the other side of it in a pretty good way, and I think that's pretty much the case now. When I got ready for this podcast and I started knowing, man, I get to talk to and I'm a big fan, just so you know, but I don't like to like get so prepared in the paperwork and the in the paper trail and the stats and your career and everything that you're about. I like to have more of what we've done today where we just touch on things. Can you do that in your role now? And where I'm going with this crew is that I want to know how you got to be so good at what you and Kipe do now. Because I talk to literally like a lot of Dodgers fan in this community. My best friend who played football at UNR, Wade Platts, is a diehard Dodgers fan. But you're his favorite commentator. You and Kipe. They're everybody that I talk to, it's crew and Kipe. You can go get packages on your cable now. Spectrum or whoever you choose, AT&T, U-verse, whatever it is, and you could get Boston, you could get Tampa Bay, you could get St. Louis. St. Louis is probably the best fans in baseball, in my opinion. I, I'm just saying knowledge-wise, when I've been around the stadiums, they know baseball in St. Louis. Kansas City's pretty good. San Francisco's awesome. But everybody that I talk to loves what you and Kipe do. What is the process? How tedious is are you preparing for spring training right now with the roster i know and we're going to get into what's going on in baseball if there's even going to be a spring training i'm so hopeful because we'll be down there march 10th through the 14th hopefully we get to say hello if you're going to be there but how do you do it do you have to break down the entire roster the night before you go into a three-game series know the bullpen know the bench players know the strategy how do you prepare well first of all thank you for that compliment and i I think that i'm very fortunate and that i get to sit next to a guy and do a game who played 10, 11 years in the big leagues. I was a pitcher. He was a player. I don't have to be all-knowing in the game. You know, from a from a color analyst perspective, you have to know the rules, obviously, but you also have to be able to speak about every facet of the game, hitting, pitching, defense, play around second base, catching, et cetera, et cetera. But are you an expert in it? No. But you have to be able to comment on it. Well, here I am sitting next to a guy that if I didn't know something about how to hit this particular type of pitch or if I didn't know how to take the throw properly when you're turning a pivot at second base from a throw from your third baseman, 
I don't have to comment on that. I, I just look right to my partner, Dwayne Kuyper, and I'll ask him. And he all of a sudden becomes a color man. So it becomes conversational. So I feel that I've been very blessed with uh, my relationship with him and being able to broadcast those games. I feel very blessed to have worked with some of the most incredible play-by-play people on the planet. And, uh, you know, play-by-play guys can really make a, an analyst look good. And so I've been very, very fortunate with people that I go to work with. And uh, what the hell was your question? I just – I just do you have to sit at this desk before you go to spring training oh, yeah. and lay okay. out the roster and, so, and know every team? Because I'm with Kype, you know, a lot of what we do is centered around batting practice. We'll watch batting practice. I'll watch the guys in the cage. And, and if you watch a group come in and uh, they're, they're taking – you know, they're with their set, um, you know, their prescribed time and BP – you watch the body language of that group, and there'll all be there'll be one guy in there with no helmet on, and he's styling, he's going up there, and he's flipping balls to right, and he's hitting the ball to left, and he's back span, spinning the opposite gap. That's a guy who, when I was a player and I'd watch BP, I'm saying to myself, don't let that guy beat you. The guy who I'll pitch to is the guy who's hitting behind him in the cage. He gets up there. And, you know, he's looking at his hands. He's looking at his feet. He's really mechanical. He's, uh, you know, he's he, he's trying to, to pull everything. He's not covering the outside part of the plate. He gets off. He's shaking his head. He's pissed off. He's, you know, he's not, he's not in conversation. The guy who's going good, he's walking back behind the cage. He's looking for people to talk to. He's a happy boy. But the guy who's not, he's not a happy boy. We pay attention to that. We watch the guy at second base or at shortstop taking ground balls, and we watch him move to the right. We watch if he crosses his left leg over and how he receives the backhand. Does he have a straight elbow? Does he receive it with a lead right foot to where his elbow's bent and he's got a softness to his hand? What's his throw like? What's his? Does he need a crow? What, how, long, how strong is his arm? You know, you can't watch. They don't take infield anymore. So you can't. Well, you have to watch batting practice. They'll still take their fly balls. But how do you tell me? Who's got the good arms out, out there? Who you got to watch them before when they're warming up. You got to watch their arms then. That tells you who the good arms are. So when we get ready for a game, we look as to how defensive they are. If they don't have great arms in the outfield, how great are how, how good are the arms in the middle infield? Rare that you have both a second baseman and a shortstop um, with great arms. Usually it's one or the other. Like Brandon Crawford, I mean, he, he, he's taken most of the throws because of his arm. It's exceptional. So we pay attention to those things. You watch the guy when they, um, uh, you know, a guy will, he'll, 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 when they are done with their, their, sec, their set, they'll take off and they'll run to first base and they'll be at first base. And you watch how they'll time the pitch to the hitter and how that first step, uh, first step that they have towards second base, you watch what that's like. How in tune was it? to the crack of the bat you watch it and there's little tips that that'll that'll if you were looking for them if you know what to look for will give you an idea as to what type of instinct that player has so we watch that we watch you know we we're always on on the internet i mean right now you can go on youtube and you can go to everybody in the organization not just the big leaguers you can go to the minor leaguers like these kids who just got drafted uh uh, in the international draft uh, from Venezuela and uh, Giants first round guy who's from Bahamas, um, um, Dominican, uh, Puerto Rico, uh, you know, Panama, Mexico. You could go back and take a look at these guys. So to me, I mean, I don't want to read about it. I don't want to read about one writer said about him. 
what is I, I want to see it. If I can see it, and now we're the generation where you can see it. YouTube is the you. You're gonna see it. That that's my favorite. That's my favorite site. I'll go there and like yesterday, I'll bet I spent two hours looking at all these kids that they've brought up, and te- and, and I want to see what their arms are like, what what type of bat snap that they have with the, with their swing, and it's you know, and these kids are 15, 16 years old, getting drafted, and you know what? Rightfully so. They're talent. Play. They're getting paid. So that's how we prepare. We. Kind of, you know, and I, we kind of rely. We don't go and research a lot of stories. We kind of let game situations sort of define what we talk about if we need a story. Because something, we've been around the game 50 years, something is going to remind us of something that we saw, whether it be in the minor leagues on a bus ride, minor leagues in a bad ballpark, minor, league, minor leagues in a bad restaurant, you know, all the way to the big leagues when, you know, something's going to remind you. And once one guy tells a story, the next guy, it kicks in. And then you kind of go back and forth. So, I mean... That that's how you prepare for it is kind of hang there and watch it for fifty years, play it for seventeen, watch it for fifty. I mean, you know, it's just great. I freaking love it. Um, with the respect you have for the game, what Carlos Santana said in your broadcasting booth about this being a holy grail, about this being a temple, this is a holy place. Is it okay to have swagger? Was it okay for Griffey Jr. to wear his hat on backwards? Is it okay for Tatis Jr. to have the dreads and the and the and the flashiness? Is it okay in a in a guy that came up in a different generation of the game? Ricky had the batting gloves. Ricky talked in a different kind of context about himself, which was awesome. Him and Dexter Manley. Um, is it okay to to? There's arrogance. There's cockiness. There's confidence. There's swagger. Baseball players. You go to a college campus and you're like, oh, you could pick out a baseball player from anywhere. You know, like you just know who's a baller, who a baseball player is. Is it okay, Krug, to have swagger, to have some of that arrogance or the cogginess? Do you like to see it, or does it disrupt your flow at all to be out there? Because, And I'm asking this because you said you saw the guy in the batting cage. It's just out there having a conversation, flipping the ball over the wall when he wants to, hitting it into the gap when he wants to, hitting and running, hitting behind the runner, whatever it is. Is it okay to have that kind of attitude towards the game? Well, I don't want to ever see a player in any game show another player up. And I think a lot of this started in the NBA where guys would dunk in a guy's face and they'd you know get back and they'd spread out and grab their balls and start screaming at the guy they just dunked on. I don't appreciate that. Um, I think you're showing up an opponent. And in baseball, when you play 162 games and you know when you get to the big leagues, you know, that's, that's it. That's the top. You're going to be playing against the same guys. You know, I, 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 you're going to develop a relationship. Why? On one particular day when it's going my way, would I show him up? Why, if I struck him out, would I go down and scream at him when I'm going to see this guy possibly in five days or another two weeks, and when he hits the home run, do you think he's going to be a little motivated to stand there, drop his bat, look at you, and you know scream? I, so I don't think showing up an opponent is appropriate in any sport. And it was hard for me to come around to this bat flip thing. But I think that... Baseball now, the way that it is marketed, football, the way that it is marketed, basketball, the Olympics. Every sport pretty much has some swagger now that they didn't have in previous generations. Guys who played it 30, 40, 50 years ago, they're upset and they're they're insulted by some of the things that they see. doesn't apply now. And I think that the way the game is marketed, if it gets a kid excited, if a bat flip gets a kid wanting to play baseball, then so be it. But I think there is a line you can cross to upsetting and, and insulting your opponent. And I just don't think there's a place for that. But the way that the game has gone right now, I really don't have 
a problem with a lot of things I'm seeing. I think that it does add flair and it does add excitement. You figure the, the, the entry-level guys who are watching this game, they're your little leaguers. Well, how well do they know the game? They don't. What's going to stick out? Home runs, bat flips, trots, um, you know, guys, you know, making a great play and then screaming loud. And, I mean, it, it, that's exciting to, to a youngster. If that kid, if that boy or girl gets excited to the point where they become a player and a fan for life, then it's worth it. Two questions on players before we move into the conclusion of our podcast and conversation with the great Mike Kruko. I want to end it with what's going on in negotiations and the meetings right now going into spring training because we're a month away from pitchers and catchers reporting. Um, the home run derby the last two years and what Pete's done, how impressed are you as a fan? And is Ken Griffey Jr. have one of the prettiest swings? Is he one of the guys, I should say, the question should be asked this way, is he in your top ten that you would love to watch play every day for the rest of your life? You're obviously a Ken Griffey Jr. fan. I just thought that his swing was amazing. <laughs> it was, and he's a great player. I, I thought his dad was a great player. Yes, and, he was. Uh, he was part of, the, of one of the most feared offenses I've ever pitched against, the Big Red Machine in Cincinnati. Um but yeah, he would be in my top ten uh, great swings. Uh, Will Clark, uh, Buster Posey, Buster Posey. I think those are my two favorite swings: left-handed, right-handed. I loved Mike Piazza's swing. Um, I loved. Uh, I love Albert Pujols' swing. His setup. I think Albert Pujols' setup is is the best setup I've ever seen. It may not be as pretty as Will Clark or you know uh, Buster Posey, but I like guys that stay inside the ball. I like elasticity. I like hand speed that looks effortless. Um, you know, Mike Piazza, he, Dwayne Kuyper once said he looked like Freddie Couple swinging a golf club. Start slow, finish slow. But in between, lightning. Those are the kind of guys that I like. And uh, and there's a lot of really great great swings now. I mean, it's uh, I, I, you go through every team. Mike, Mike Trout, the best low ball hitter I've ever seen. That's the best low ball hitter I've ever Does seen. Does he have a chance to be the best of all time in your opinion? Um, well, he's got to stay healthy. Um, I mean, he already is one of them. And uh, I think he could do some remarkable things still, but man, he's got to stay healthy. That's yeah. the one thing you fear. Once a guy starts breaking down, I mean, it's hard to stop that. Yeah. Um, Pete, what Pete's done in the home run derby is this. I mean, he's done some things that even like McGuire and Griffey weren't doing back in the day. What's going on with the home run derby in your opinion? Are you watching it as a fan? I'm watching it because of Pete Alonso, absolutely. Um, well, yeah, he's. Mark McGuire, yeah. Well, he and Alonzo. I don't know if he's Alonzo's better than McGuire, but uh, or Canseco or you know Bonds. I mean, I you know, but he's remarkable because he can repeat the stroke so quickly. It's an exhausting exercise to be in the home run derby. You get tired, but Alonzo, for whatever reason, just doesn't. I mean. This guy, I mean, if this had been, what, uh, 800 years ago, he'd have been a Roman soldier. I mean, he'd been fighting with a flat blade. The guy is short-armed. He's got a short approach to the ball. He's got amazing power. He is absolutely built for the home run derby, and he's coming back next year. I won't miss it because of him. I, I agree. And the, I want, want people need to understand the stamina that you have to have. It's not easy stamina wise, right, Mike, to get in there and to take that many hacks with that much prowess and power. It's not that easy, right? It's not. And, and that's why a lot of guys wear out. I mean, and that's, you know, Pete Alonso, that's his edge. He doesn't get tired. He can just keep firing it. And I mean, and the other thing too is he's not a max swinger. 
his natural swing is pretty easy, and it's got so much power built into it. So he doesn't have to try and kill it. Um, but I, I think it's become an exciting event. I, I, you know, there was a time where I used to think they're getting forty-five thousand people in the stands for this. But the way they've tweaked it and made it better, I think it's a great show now. I love it. I DVR and watch it a couple times a year, especially when he's been hitting. But one more swing to analyze for me, in your opinion, Freddie Freeman. How special is his swing, or am I off by saying that? But it just seems like he doesn't have a whole lot of gaps in his swing. No, he's unique. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen a swing like his. Me neither. Another guy who's inside the ball, and um, he would definitely be in my top ten. And, nice. And uh, I think that he's a type of hitter that could hit in any generation. Uh, he could hit any style of pitching. I don't really know if he has a consistent weakness. Um the great swings can beat great pitches. They'll, I've always believed that great pitching beats great hitting. But great swings give hitters an opportunity to beat great pitching on every pitch. That's, that's what the greats have, and he certainly has got that, that ability. We've had some great National League divisional guys that are in the NL West on this podcast. I want your opinion on two of them, and then I promise we're done with the conclusion going into this season. Walker Bueller's pr- talent and Charlie Chuck Nasty Blackman, right fielder for the Colorado Rockies, a good friend of ours. Hunter loves the the culture, but what are your opinion on these two players? Because you get to see them quite a bit during the season. Well, Bueller is a guy who I think uh, when he first came up, I mean, after his rookie year, somebody said, who would you other – give me your, your top best rotation – and I included Walker Bueller in that rotation, and I did not include Justin Verlander. And the guy said, well, "You're taking Bueller more than Verlander." I said, "Yes, I am. I, I think this guy. I felt the same way about him that I felt about Linscombe, Bumgarner, Kane, and Logan Webb. I thought the first time I saw Kershaw, I felt the same way the first time I saw him. This guy's going to do something special in the game. This guy, it comes out of his hand way too easy." He's got swagger. He's got presence. He's got five or six types of movement that he commands. This guy's legit. And he throws, I mean, everything he has is quality. So I, I think he is, uh, you know, one of the, the best in our game now and, uh, and will be for a long time. You know, I, I, the, the, in watching all those pictures that I, ma- I named, you knew at an early age they were going to do something special, and I think he's going to have that type of career. In regards to um, – Blackman, I, he's a guy who I, I really like because he never really came up with the fanfare. This guy is self-made, and he's just tough. I mean, I even like his uh, walk-up song. You know, uh, it's the whole image that's Charlie Blackman. If there is ever a poster child that should play for the Colorado Rockies, it's the mountain man of Charlie Blackman, and uh, and just tough. The better the the bigger the moment, the tougher he is. I mean, he's another one of those guys that uh, has got that first step on on defense and on the base pass. He's just a baseball player. And uh, and I, I, I wish that I could have played against him. I wish I could have played with him. And I wish I could hunt. I wish I could hunt. I wish I could fish with him. I mean, he he's just fishing. one of those guys that you, you want to be close to. Well, let's go do it. Well, my fishing and hunt days are over. Ugh, I hate hearing that. Well, take us through the next 60 days in MLB. Your opinion. What is going on right now? What's the agreement need to get to? And are you optimistic, but more so, are you positive that we will have a spring training in Scottsdale and Florida in the next month, starting in the next month? Will March be full of cold beers and sunshine for us to go down and enjoy spring training going into opening day in April? Well, I hope hope so. I mean, 
Um, but look, th- this is, uh, it's the nature of the basic agreement. Every time it comes up, there's always going to be friction. And, and we go back to 1994 when the game was stopped and we missed postseason, which was the most catastrophic thing that ever happened because we lost fans. Fans walked away from the game, said, that's it, I'm out, and they haven't come back. And you can't do that. So there's always a concern when this basic agreement comes up. It's going full force now. It is, uh, I don't know when it's going to end. I just know that it will end, and it will be very positive as to what what uh, what comes out of it. The players got their ass kicked six years ago so bad in the previous agreement that they feel they have to make a stand now, and they will. Uh, the primary concerns are always going to be owner control. They um, And so they're going to talk about years of eligibility to become a free agent. They're going to talk about Super 2 uh, arbitration qualifiers. They're going to talk about um, uh, caps. They'll talk about salary caps and whatnot. So it, it, I don't know how much of that is going to change. It's just, it's just it's a necessary evil. So I don't get too worked up over it. I'm, uh, I, I'm ticked off to the point where, you know, it's annoying. But I just know that it's going to end. Uh, and I'll say one thing that's a very positive note. In 1994, prior to the season, uh, the ownership group was cut up in three different groups. They had the Doves, who just didn't want to have stop it, just like, you know, let's just work this out. They had some that were kind of just sort of apathetic, like, oh, whatever, you know. And then they had the Hawks, and they had about 16 of them. And they had a, 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 a one group of Hawks that they wanted the confrontation. They wanted the strike. They wanted to break the union. And uh, the generation today of owners, all 30 of them, we don't have those groups. And if uh, our commissioner, Rob Manford, came back to the owners and said, look, we have a pretty good deal right here, in all likelihood it would get passed very quickly. We don't have that, that real aggressive, hawk-minded uh, mindset of the ownerships that we had in 1994. And I think that's a positive thing. I think that's a positive thing because the, the willingness to have a deal, um, I think, would lead me to believe it would be a much more fair deal. A fair deal, both sides walk away saying, well, we gave up something, but we gained something. I don't think it happened in the last agreement. I think that needs to happen in this agreement, and I think it will. So that that leads me to be very optimistic about what's in store for us. And if it does come, which we are both optimistic it will, will you be in Scottsdale in another month? I don't travel anymore. I can't get on a plane. So uh, I will be doing games uh, that are in Scottsdale, but I'll be doing them from the uh, NBC Sports Bay Area studios in San Francisco. Is that the same? But you will be in the regular stadium during the season? Yeah, during the regular season, I'll be there for all 81 home games. And then uh, I'm scheduled and contracted to do 22 uh, of the regular season away games. And those will all be done uh, in the studio. So it's a little bit different. But, this, I mean, look, right now, broadcast teams aren't, aren't allowed to travel. Now, radio teams are, but broadcast teams are not. Simply because with broadcast teams, you have to have uh, – producers you have to have directors you have to have chiron people you have to have camera people i mean you just can't travel a large entourage with radio you need two guys and an engineer and you can have your your away team go so you'll see radio travel before uh television and i don't know if any point this year you're going to see any television it'll be three years if that happens since we've been able to go on the road as a tv team crazy to end this what was the origin of your famous Crookism or crookoism of grab some. I don't want to give it away. I want to hear you say it. Who was the first guy you said it? 
did you feel bad when you said it? Because it's become famous. I mean, you become known for saying that when it's a strikeout or whatever the case might be. Do you remember the first time and how did it stick with you to say, hey, did a light bulb go off? And you're like, oh man, I need to, I need to keep that. You know, I think that's been around baseball for 150 years. Uh, I think, uh, you know, uh, Abner Doubleday said it. I do. I, I honestly <laughs> believe that. But the very first time I heard it, uh, it was in, in, in rookie league and we were playing the Cardinals. I was with the Cubs. And uh, somebody who had a little swagger uh, had hit a home run for the Cardinals and had a very long trot, which at that point in time, nobody did. And our manager, a guy named QV Lowe, uh, when uh, the, the guy came up for his second at bat, he struck out. And when he struck out, he yelled out at him, grab some pine meat. And I just thought that was the funniest thing <laughs> was I it ever Jack heard. No, it no, wasn't. I, I, oh. No, somebody had never even got hired in A-ball. I mean, but uh, he just had the Cardinal Uni on. But he said that. And so, I mean, in every dugout, in every team I've ever played one, there's something that's But who said. hit the home run? Was it Jack Clark? No, no, this is a rookie league. Oh, this is a rookie ball. Yeah, okay. this is like we're playing in front of 14 people, rookie uh, Grab league. some pine meat. Yeah, but, and so that's the first time I ever heard it. But every team I was ever on said it. And uh, so when I got to the broadcast booth, that was just part of the dugout I brought with me. And it, it was kind of fun to say, and it's kind of taken on a life of its own. We don't say it a lot, or we don't say it every game, but when we do say it, we mean it. And we usually say it against, you know, Walker Buehler that strikes out. Grab some pine meat. Best Italian food in San Francisco, go. The best Italian, well, oh my gosh. Uh, there's a place called Sociale. Sociale. Uh, and it's a little, very romantic place uh, up in uh, the Presidio Heights. Um, just a spectacular place. And uh, call up and ask for David and tell him I sent you. And uh, it's got a little patio there, and it's just spectacular food. And uh, it's Sociale would be my favorite. I'm going best bowl of chowder. Well, that would be in Pismo Beach Splash Cafe. That's you can't beat that. <laughs> you just went against the bay. You just so not. It's not on the wharf. Nope. Well, best seafood on the wharf. Best seafood. Uh, well, uh, Scomas. Scomas. Scomas is, is great. We used to never. We never. The, the gal that used to be there, Marie. She was such a sweetheart. She would all. Whatever team I was on, the Cubs and the Phillies, we'd all come in there and force. We'd have 10, 12 guys, and she all brought us in and. And made us feel like we were relatives. She was just a sweetheart, and uh, so we loved Scomas. But, uh, um, uh, I mean, jeez, my favorite seafood place now. Wow, I can't even think. The of Joint the Sushi on uh, Plum Lane, Reno, Nevada. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah, yeah. Are we gonna go eat sushi sometime together, Kurt? Are you a sushi fan? I love sushi. I love oh, food. I, I love, love food. Sushi. In fact, you know, we got lunch for you guys here when you're all done here. We're eating beans right now. So oh, ham hock and lima beans. Oh, I like it. I'm a fan. Um, let's end this with just your opinion. Is the Dodger dog overrated? In the end, it what is the best? What water is, bar. The water bar is my favorite seafood place. Water bar? Yeah. San Francisco? Yeah. Okay, well, sorry. There's a new so water bar here on the Sparks Marina that I heard is bomb. It's owned by the same people that own uh, Garwoods in Tahoe. They just opened out a oh, marina. Check that out. I heard okay. it's a great menu. I interrupted your question. Sorry. No, it's okay. Is the Dodger dog overrated? Because I don't understand why. Oh, the Dodger dog is horrible. <laughs> I love it. You know, and, we get free Dodger dogs. We go down to L.A., right? Yeah, they, you don't eat them. No. <laughs> No, because by the time they get in the seventh inning, they're like a like a a beanie weenie. No, they, they're kind of like they're coated in some kind of alloy or something. They just don't even look normal. What's your favorite of all time, if you can remember it? Big league stadium, 
food. Well, when I was a kid, it was a Dodger dog. They were good. Now they're horrible. Uh, but I think that uh, in Wrigley Field, uh, you know, when you, Chicago style hot dogs. There's nothing like them. Well, the brats in Milwaukee. Those are very good. Those the are beer good brats. Ones. The beer brats. Yeah. The Sheboygan at, at uh, Oracle Park. That's a, that's a good one too. I agree. Can we do another one of these? Maybe after the season, just catch up. And I love talking baseball. With well, you. yeah. We don't even have to have a microphone. You can come over and talk ball anytime you want. I love baseball. I, maybe I'll even come over and just maybe bring a big screen with a video of my swing and let you analyze it. Let me see it. Well, you're a short-arm swinger right now. You're a middle-end guy. I have a video on my phone in spring training with the Royals with Sweeney throwing, and I'm hitting cage bombs, Krug. I mean, like big bombs. I just want you to look at it. You never looked middle of the way a day in your life. <laughs> I did, but I never could hit off a field. That's probably what my downfall was. And my arm. And I got picked off in Stockton against UOP, University Pacific. They backdoored me on second base. I was the tying run. That was the day I was called the biggest recruiting mistake of Fred Dalmore's career. I love Fred Dalmore. I love Fred Dalmore. No, we had Brian with the Giants. and uh, Grand Slam. One of my favorite moments is when he hit his uh, first big league homer, a Grand Slam. And it could have been his first big league hit for I remember. But it, it, uh, it was in, in San Francisco. And then afterwards, uh, his dad, Fred, the coach at UNLV and a great baseball guy, uh, to see the two of those guys together. And, uh, you know, they didn't even have to say a word. It was just too good. Teared me up. I'm going to get, maybe if you're open to it, we'll come to you. I'm going to, because Freddie lives just right here on Mayberry. We'll get Freddie and come over and, and maybe talk baseball or eat lunch or something one day. I'd love to have you see Freddie. Uh, that's that's a date. That's a date. Anytime. I take him to Louie's Bass Corner and he sits there and tells story after story after story. Did he get the pecan? I don't, I haven't been there at a time of the day with him. I don't think I'd let him have a pecan. We go at noon. <laughs> Yeah, the very first time I went there, next door neighbor, uh, he said, "We, we had, it, it said, you got to go, you got to go. Okay, all right, we go there. So we're there, and it's noon. Well, I don't drink. I'm not a day drinker. You know, I'll have a cocktail at night, but never at noon. And uh, so Rich Capura, God bless him, rest his soul, great guy. And I was there with like seven or eight of his buddies, and they're, uh, we're all having lunch, and uh, Louis is just it's it's such a great place. Good, the, great food. The best. So they bring a pecan over. So I have one, and then all of a sudden they bring another one over, and I'm going. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I I put it down. Oh god, that's it was dangerous. a good thing I wasn't driving home. That's yeah, darn sure. You're gonna have to. We'll sing sure. lethal. Uber type. Yeah. Do you like the bass go tos? Do you like the lingua, the tongue? Do you like the sweetbreads? Do you like the sautéed sweetbreads? I like it all. Oh, good I like it all. You like I love food. the chorizo down at the Basque restaurant in Carson. In Carson City. at the cafe. Amazing place that the best trees on nevada for sure mike kruko thank you so much chad my pleasure this was awesome i look forward to hearing your voice on we'll many do it games again. As you, are i got you, the cigars you got the whiskey i i promise you i got that i got that what oh well, well that's an excuse to come back you can have i brought him a foul life at yeah yeah i saw it oh, one yeah, day we're going to come up here with our trailer we're doing this at uh i told you this going into our conversation before we got a mic George is flying in tomorrow to be the speaker at the UNR Baseball Bobby Dolan dinner. You spoke at this, did you not, one time? I did. You did, okay, I remember. And um, <clears throat> tomorrow night, we're cooking for George on the Traegers. We bring a trailer in, Bubba helps us. We bring a, Traeger in, or a, a trailer full of Traegers in and back them out off the ramp and just go to town. We should do that up here one time and just throw down on some barbecue but and I some milk. got a Traeger right out there in the back porch right there. See, we bring some duck, we'll bring some brisket, we'll do something. Just did a duck the other day on the on the Big Easy. Have you ever have you ever used a Big Easy? No, I'll have to go Bubba? look at it. Nope. We'll have to go look at it. All right, round this up, will you? 
Mike Kruko, thank you. This has been another episode of This Life Ain't For Everybody, presented by the one and only Tennessee Sour Mash Whiskey, Jack Daniels. Enjoy it responsibly. Never allow underage drinking. Look for Kruk and Kipe. Giants games this season. Major League Baseball, I'm Chad Belding. Oh!